This is Monday Morning QB, December 7th, 2020. I'm Askia Mohammed. Today on the show, even with a COVID vaccine just days from formal approval, suspicions abound in this country. And nearly everyone, especially retail workers, are at the edge of an economic cliff unless Congress approves relief. Ethiopia manages its largest civil conflict in decades and indigenous sovereignty beyond just reclaiming their land. All that and more, stay with us. COVID, 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 COVID. Coronavirus vaccines are nearly ready for distribution in this country, yet suspicions, especially among black folks, abound. Dr. Reed Tuxen, former director of the D.C. Department of Health and co-founder of the Black Coalition Against COVID, however, is eager to see the safe vaccines that are on the horizon. This is a very exciting moment uh, in the fight against this terrible uh, pandemic. Uh, We know that uh, over the next few days, we will have uh, public access and scientific access to the data from the clinical trials from the Moderna study and the Pfizer study. Uh, This will give us a chance to be able to see exactly how well this uh, vaccine, these vaccines, uh, um, uh, uh, how well those vaccines worked. And and we will also know a lot more about whether or not uh, these vaccines are helpful with people and people who have pre-existing conditions and in people of color. So we are very excited about where we are And I think the next few days will really tell us an awful lot about whether we are truly at the precipice of having uh, safe and effective vaccines to uh, to turn this pandemic around. What will it take to convince you? Thankfully, that um, we will have people of color uh, throughout the process of reviewing this data in great detail. Uh, I'm really pleased that um, uh, that that one of the members of our coalition group, uh, Dr. Uh, Hildreth, the president of Meharry Medical College, will be sitting on the committee uh, on behalf of the FDA reviewing the actual data in great detail. And so his eyes will certainly uh, be attuned to anything of, of concern uh, as we go forward. And of course, there will be uh, uh, wide publicity of, of the actual facts. Uh, And also the data will be submitted into the peer review medical literature. So all of these will provide us with great opportunities to speak to our community authoritatively and accurately and honestly and trustworthily about whether or not the vaccine is actually safe and whether it works and how well it does work. Still, the black community seems to be most suspicious of all those who are potential recipients of the vaccine based on history, based on a mistrust of the medical system? This is a very important point, uh, Askia, and I, and, I, and I understand, as well as anyone understands, the horrific and outrageous legacy of things like the Tuskegee syphilis study back in the 30s and other insults that have occurred. So I fully understand those things. However, we need to be very clear that um, that the conspiracy theories that seem to be prevalent throughout our community 
are ultimately, I think, very, very dangerous and very, very concerning in terms of the ability for us as a people to survive this pandemic. If we look at what's going on now in this pandemic uh, without a vaccine, um, we are now uh, experiencing an absolutely uh, out of control uh, experience with COVID. It is now out of control. The slope of the curve for the infectiousness uh, of this uh, uh, disease, uh, 30% of all of the cases of COVID infection in the United States since the beginning of this pandemic occurred in the last month, in the month of November. And so we are really at a horrible place. And so if we as black folks continue to uh, promulgate the conspiracy theories that are around and result in our unwillingness to accept a safe, I emphasize, safe and proven vaccine, then we are going to die at the same record numbers in our community that we are already experiencing in all of this. I would finally, Asia, uh, remind everyone that 2020 is not 1930. Back in 1930, when Tuskegee was around, we didn't have black scientists in positions of authority. We weren't running clinical trials. Today, the head of the National Institutes of Health, uh, uh, National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, the second largest institute at NIH, is run by a black scientist. The person who's been doing so much of the fundamental basic science work on the vaccine uh, is a black woman. And so my point is, is that we have got to realize that while we have reason for historical dis- uh, historical distrust, and I understand it, we cannot let historical distrust cause us to continue to die at the extraordinary rates that we have when there is something available to us to save our lives and that of our families, of our children, and of our seniors. I have to confess that when Donald Trump was primping up and down uh, about vaccine being imminent, I wondered, well, I probably wouldn't trust it unless he took it first on television as opposed to him making some pronouncement just for his own political gain. And I feel the same way about some of the others, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates. I mean, they why don't they take it first just to say, we know this is safe and we're going to put it in our arms before we ask people who are suspicious of us to take it. Well, first of all, with uh, Donald Trump, I, I have, I think that I have zero interest in what he does or does not do. He has proven himself to be the most uh, dangerous human being uh, uh, possible to be leading a country at a time of crisis. And, and his, he, he has no, I have no interest whether he takes or he doesn't take, but I don't care about Donald Trump at all. In terms of Bill Gates, I think we all do need to realize that I understand there are a lot of theories and conspiracy theories about Bill Gates, but I look very much at, uh, as a Pan-Africanist, I look at what's happening across the continent in Africa, and I have seen the dedication and the extraordinary expenditure of money that he has made to stamp out um, uh, diseases across the continent and things that we have been advocating and hoping and fighting for to protect the lives of, of, of our brothers and sisters on the continent, um, he has put his money, time, and treasure and intellect to bear do those things. So I think he's the wrong person to hold up as a, uh, as a malevolent force. Uh, but that being said, um, I think that it is your point is, is, if your point is that the people who are like me uh, and other physician leaders out here in the country, if we're going to say that the vaccine is safe, and efficacious, then we're going to need to be uh, stepping up 
and, uh, and, and, and taking the vaccine once that data is finally and fully realized. And you can certainly expect that people like me will do that. Um, and that there will, that, that I will certainly, uh, put my, uh, my actions, uh, with my uh, scientific integrity. Those must come together. And so I appreciate your point. Suppose black people say, well, we're going to wait another nine months, another year, just to make sure that this is safe. Can't we, by masking up and by social distancing and doing these things, can't we wait and then really, really, really be sure that this is safe rather than uh, rushing in, into something that usually vaccines take years and years and this came along in months? If people would like to sit back and wait, and if our community decides to do that, then you already know from what's happening today uh, what will happen. So we know what will happen. What will happen is we will continue to die at the same disproportionately high rates that we have been dying before. We will know that our hospitals where we live are going to be overrun by people who are, who are sick. We know that it will mean that people who have heart attacks and strokes uh, will not be able to get access to the hospital because the bed will be filled with other people that are dying from, from COVID. We know that, elect, that our elective surgical procedures will have to be postponed like they were when we first started this pandemic because the beds will be filled with people dying of COVID. We already know what happens when you stand back and let the current situation run unchecked and run amok. So I don't think there's a lot of theory here. And that's one of the things that I think that we all are going to have to get our arms around. Those of us who uh, complain in our community about disproportionately high death rates from, for black people from disease, but then turn their back on proven uh, uh, scientific and, and medical tools that can save our lives, you can't, you can't turn your back on solutions and then complain that you're dying. Uh, that's incompatible. Uh, and so I, I think that's important. In terms of the speed with which the vaccine has been developed, that's one of the horrible things that Trump has done to us. By politicizing these kinds of things, he automatically turns, our, uh, turns us against uh, things that make sense. Uh, that's, that's one of the great tragic legacies that he will leave us. It sort of seems perplexing to see that so many of us uh, are so worried about the speed, and I understand that. But we also need to realize that uh, that this is one of the greatest breakthroughs uh, in medical history, in the history of the world. And being able to move this rapidly um, and do it safely and appropriately is a terrific triumph. And I certainly do hope at the end of the day that our community does not turn its back on the tools necessary to, to, for, for black survival. I have an undying love for black people. And as a result of that, I want to make absolutely sure that when we find that we have innovation that can save black life, that we do everything in our power to have access to those tools. I love black people, and I hate to see us dying for no reason. Dr. Reed Tuxen, former director of the D.C. Department of Health, has promised, as have former presidents Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, and George W. Bush, to be publicly inoculated in order to increase public trust when the FDA approves a new coronavirus vaccine. Coming up next, without a stimulus soon, the U.S. economy is headed to a COVID cliff. What could that mean for many Americans? 
COVID-19 pandemic is still raging across the U.S. Last week marked a new high in the number of daily deaths, with close to 3,000 reported on Thursday. And on Friday, another record was broken, with close to 230,000 new cases of the virus recorded. But even with the spread expected to get worse over the next few weeks, some federal financial relief is set to expire at the end of this month. And without another stimulus package, a dire situation will only get worse. Sue Goodwin reports. It's called the COVID cliff, a reference to a number of pieces of critical financial aid all set to expire weeks from now. Tamara Fusil is Senior Advisor for Government Affairs at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, and she describes the potential impact if that happens. Well, there are a number of pieces of critical aid that have been provided thus far through the CARES Act and the Families First Act that have really helped provide a lifeline to those who are struggling. That's uh, the existing eviction moratorium, which has kept people housed as they've had difficulty paying rent. It's the enhanced unemployment insurance benefits that have been provided to help make sure that those who have lost income as a result of this pandemic are able to get a little bit to help them stay above water. And then, you know, that's also things like the paid sick and family leave that have provided workers with additional flexibilities to take time off as schools uh, and child care facilities have been closed and caregiving needs have risen. Unfortunately, all of these provisions expire at the end of the year. The Center on Budget and Policy Priorities has been reporting on the financial impact Americans are facing as a result of the pandemic with a tool called the COVID Hardship Watch. Drawing on census data and other federal sources, it documents the recession's growing human impact. Last week, they released their most recent report summarizing that data, and what it shows drives home the need for substantial continued relief. Here's what the newest report says about renters. So what this data confirms is that millions of Americans are facing housing insecurity as a result of the coronavirus. Uh, What we know is that nearly 83 million adults, or 34%, reported having difficulty covering expenses, including uh, rent or mortgage, uh, medical expenses, and and car payments, those sort of basic payments. When you look at that specifically to renters, it's about one in six renters are saying that they are not caught up on their rent, or 12.4 million renters across the country are behind on their rent. And it's not just renters that are on the verge of a housing crisis. The report indicates an estimated 9.4 million adults are in a household that is not caught up in its mortgage payment. And unless Congress acts in the coming weeks, we could see a tsunami of evictions as the moratorium expires and, um, and people are no longer protected and kept in their homes. You know, we will likely see um, the impact of the loss of that additional unemployment insurance making these hardship numbers be that much more difficult as people continue to struggle to put food on the table or or pay rent and uh, other everyday expenses. 
The report also cites data from several sources showing a dramatic increase in the number of households struggling to get enough food on the table. Nearly 26 million adults, 12% of all adults in the country, reported that their households sometimes or often didn't have enough to eat in the last seven days. It's a hardship that is being felt worse among specific populations, for example, children. Absolutely. What we're seeing is that while tens of millions of people across the country are struggling to meet basic needs, the rates among children are dramatically higher than they are for for adults. An estimated 45% of all children live in a household that are reporting difficulty covering normal everyday expenses. That's over four in 10 children living in housing where they are either behind on their rent or they don't have enough money to put food on the table. Communities of color are also facing a disproportionate amount of hardship during the pandemic, a fact that Tamara Fusil says reflects long-standing economic inequalities. But what we've seen now is really just exacerbating that, those existing inequalities and systemic racism. Nearly half of black adults report difficulty covering household expenses which is nearly twice the rate uh, among white adults. And 47% of Latino adults reported such difficulties. So we really are seeing that the impacts of this pandemic on communities of color is significantly higher. In an effort to buffer the hardship brought on by the pandemic, the original CARES Act gave money to state, local, and tribal governments to respond. That funding is now also at risk and with dire consequences at stake. Budget shortfalls have already driven harmful cuts to education and other services, as well as layoffs and furloughs of large numbers of state and local workers. And more cuts are likely coming without additional aid. Given the loss of revenue to state and local governments, without the additional assistance from the federal government, we're expecting even more layoffs over the coming months that will really just put us more into a downward spiral. Tamara Seal says it really couldn't be clearer. Congress needs to take significant actions to address ongoing hardship and shore up the economy. And that means even going further than the CARES Act. As, uh, as we look at issues like housing, it's key that first we extend the eviction moratorium that's set to expire. We know that if people are evicted, that uh, creates this downward spiral that is often hard for, uh, for households to, to get out of. But in, a, in addition to extending the eviction moratorium, we also need the federal government to provide rental assistance. We know that if people are just given a moratorium, that they will continue to assume uh, house-related debt. Uh, that's bad for the, the families. That's bad for um, the landlords, many of whom are, you know, small businesses or individuals who own properties. To help make sure that we do not have a a huge eviction crisis, people need to be able to make sure that their rent and housing-related debts can be paid. Tamara Fusil and her colleagues at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities are also calling for Congress to take action on food assistance for millions who aren't getting enough to eat, including students missing out school breakfast and lunch. And they are calling for adequate levels of unemployment benefits and additional weeks of benefits for people who have lost their jobs. 
To see their updated COVID hardship watch, visit their website at cbpp.org. From Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. Coming up in just a moment, how retail workers are organizing around a pandemic platform. there's one thing we have learned from the COVID pandemic, it's about the essential nature of retail workers. Every day they put themselves on the front line to make sure the general public is able to purchase the food and supplies we need, virus or no virus. And now with the holiday shopping rush bearing down, these workers are in even greater danger. That's why some of these frontline employees have launched a new campaign they say is necessary to protect their safety. Sue Goodwin has more. The campaign is called Five to Survive, and it was launched by United for Respect, a movement started by workers to improve the lives of retail employees. The group now represents more than 16 million people across the U.S. Among them is Phil Andrews, an employee at Petco. I'm a pet stylist, which is a basically a dog groomer, and I've been employed with Petco for going on 14 years now. And like many of his fellow employees, as the pandemic continues, Phil Andrews does not feel safe at work. I do not. I'll flat out say no. I do not, because uh, when it first started and, and it was, they seemed to have, you know, enforced some restrictions, to, but it, they've since slacked off, and, uh, and I do not feel safe. To make his point, Andrews cites a recent example. I work in the salon, and it's shut off from the rest of the store, and I was instrumental in, in originally getting a sign put up on the door saying one customer at a time. You know, just because it's such an enclosed space. And just about maybe two or three weeks ago, that sign was taken down. Since then, at Phil Andrews' request, that sign has been put back up, but it's hardly the only issue at stake for Petco employees. Back in August, Andrews, along with some of his fellow employees, signed a letter to the owners of Petco to demand more safety for all its employees, as well as greater financial compensation during this pandemic. Consider this. In the first 10 months of 2020 and eight months of the pandemic, Petco says it increased sales by more than 9% over the prior year. And just last week, the company's owners, CVC Capital Partners, filed for an IPO that Phil Andrews says could bring in billions. Meanwhile, he and many employees at Petco are making $9 an hour. Considering the company has made a profit off of this pandemic, you know, we have not seen any of that. And we're the ones that basically put that money in the pocket. So... We wanted some hazard pay, $5 minimum increase in pay. But the main thing for me was the, was the safety issues. 
And now those demands are part of a bigger campaign. Just before Thanksgiving, essential workers at Amazon, Walmart, Petco, all members of United for Respect, introduced a new Five to Survive pandemic platform. Five to Survive calls on all retail corporations to provide a minimum of $5 per hour in essential pay and access to adequate paid and unpaid leave, including 12 weeks of emergency paid family leave, so that associates can care for their loved ones if they get sick. The campaign also calls for safety measures, such as immediate and transparent notification of positive cases in stores and full pay to workers who need to self-isolate after a positive case is detected. Additionally, Five to Survive demands a seat at the table for workers when it comes to making decisions on safety measures and protocol and protection from retaliation. Phil Andrews hopes that kind of protection will encourage more workers to speak up. And I think a lot of people right now are scared to speak up. I was one of them for my company that did. But basically people are afraid. So I think if it's, it's get people get employees get more comfortable about talking about it, tell their families and the public gets gets more knowledgeable of what's happening. I think there should be a a good response. United for Respect isn't the only organization bringing attention to the dangers faced by retail workers during this pandemic. Three weeks ago, the United Food and Commercial Workers reported that among the union's members, there have been at least 350 frontline worker deaths and at least 48,000 frontline workers infected or exposed to coronavirus. The union says those numbers are likely to be much higher as retails are not required to report cases or deaths to officials. Phil Andrews says he's optimistic that the United for Respect Five to Survive campaign will draw the attention of shoppers to these conditions and that shoppers in turn will put pressure on retailers to do something. Absolutely. You know, everyone I have talked to, I mean, customers, clients of mine, I mean, I don't know of anyone that is against paying these people the money they deserve for the work that they've done. So it, it's basically just the, the employees that are, you know, holding steady here. But as long as Petco stays open, Phil Andrews will most likely keep working because he really doesn't have much of a choice. I just want the safety issues taken care of. That is my personal main thing because I don't feel safe going into work and I can't afford to take off because I won't get paid if I'm not there. Phil Andrews, a Petco employee and a member of United for Respect. To learn more about the Five to Survive campaign, visit unitedforrespect.org and use the numeral four. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. If you thought the United States was in crisis, compare it with Ethiopia. The federal government there is engaged in a military conflict 
with the special forces of its northern ethnic Tigray region, which had itself just lost control of the federal government in 2018. The conflict threatens to inflame Ethiopia's ethnic tensions, could boil over into neighboring Eritrea, and has already led to a dangerous humanitarian situation. Can Ethiopia pull back from the brink? Reporter Chris Banger-Drowns has that story. Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed came to power in 2018 after years of protest led to the resignation of his predecessor. Though a member of the same coalition that has ruled Ethiopia since the end of its civil war in 1991, Abiy sought political reform that alienated a certain faction of that coalition. The Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, or TPLF, is one of the groups that helped overthrow a military junta almost 30 years ago, and its dominance in Ethiopian politics was only broken once Abiy Ahmed became prime minister two years ago. Under the previous ruling coalition, you know, there was a lot of corruption, there were a lot of arrests and killings, and it's just a lot of Ethiopians had grievances that were not answered by the previous coalition. And so there was a lot of hope now that uh, this new prime minister came into power that, you know, that might shift. That's Nani Deti, Africa program researcher at the Center for International Policy. She explains one of the core political dynamics in Ethiopia. One of the main issues that Ethiopia has had is, of course, ethnic violence and ethnic division. And and we've seen this in the past few years, you know, where people no longer identify as Ethiopians, but as their ethnic groups. And a lot of people point to, you know, the structures that were set up with the help of TPLF, that these problems exist. So a lot of Ethiopians do, you know, look back at the past couple of decades and, you know, have uh, certain grievances that they're still holding on to. Abiy Ahmed's ascension to prime minister was, in large part, a response to these ethnic divisions and decades of grievances. Abiy formed a new prosperity party as part of his effort to unify Ethiopia, but the TPLF didn't sign on to the arrangement over fears of losing political power. The feud began to boil over when Ethiopia's federal government postponed elections in Tigray, citing the threat of coronavirus. Now, that news was not uh, welcomed well by TPLF uh, because they saw it as one way that the prime minister's trying to extend his his power. And so they were very unhappy with it. And so what they did was TPLF said that uh, we will go against the federal government and hold our own regional elections. And so in September, they hosted their own regional elections. TPLF won 100 percent of the regional election seats. And so they remained as leaders of, of the Tigray region. The situation collapsed after Ethiopia's federal government accused Tigrayan forces of attacking a military base on November 4th. Prime Minister Abiy ordered a military offensive into the Tigray region. The federal parliament proposed designating the TPLF a terrorist organization, and telephone and internet connections were shut down. This halt to the flow of information isn't new in Ethiopia, as Nani Dati explains. In Ethiopia's case, it's always been difficult. And if you look at, you know, the past few years where we've had uh, major incidents, you know, where we've had protests or assassinations that, you know, led to a lot of ethnic conflict, there's always been a time when the government would shut down the internet. So internet access and, you know, blocking information access has always been a thing in Ethiopia's history, especially uh, during the previous regime. Both the federal government and the TPLF accuse each other of shutting down communications. While historically this kind of action has been taken by the federal government, 
it's difficult to verify who is telling the truth here. You know, the Ethiopian government in the past, even within this past year, has shut down the internet a few times. And one of the times was when a prominent artist named Ajalundesa was assassinated. And, you know, his assassination basically sparked a wave of protest, you know, that ended up killing around 150 people and thousands were arrested. And during that time, there was a state of emergency where the internet was shut down. So with this particular case, though, there's a lot of finger pointing going on. So um, it's hard to say who we should blame for this lack of communication. The inability to verify information has made responding to the humanitarian situation on the ground difficult. The United Nations Refugee Agency says tens of thousands have fled from Tigray to Sudan, but information about those who remain in Ethiopia is hard to come by. Ethiopia agreed to allow UN aid agencies access to Tigray, but as of Friday, that access had yet to be actually granted. This does not bode well for the many thousands in Tigray who, even before the conflict, were reliant on food aid. Internally, I mean, there were already 600,000 people in the Tigray region that were reliant on food aid and different humanitarian aid. So when the conflict broke out, they basically had been blocked out of all the aid that they should be getting. And then additionally, there are around 96,000 Eritrean refugees, actually, in in Tigray who fled Eritrea for various reasons. Uh, And so they've also been cut off uh, from aid. The presence of Eritrean refugees in Tigray is an important indication of how volatile this region is. Eritrea, which shares language and a long border with Tigray, was once part of the Ethiopian Empire and only won independence after the end of the civil war in the 1990s. Eritrea and Ethiopia then fought a war over borders from 1998 until 2000, and peace wasn't declared until 2018, when Abiy Ahmed agreed to abide by the peace treaty signed nearly 20 years prior. This newfound diplomatic bond complicates the current conflict in Tigray, and a lack of verifiable information makes any account of Eritrea's involvement impossible to trust. The TPLF fired rockets into Eritrea after accusing Ethiopian troops of using an Eritrean airport to attack Tigray. And most recently, the TPLF has accused Eritrean forces themselves of mass looting in the Tigray region. It is difficult to say in confidence whether they're involved or not. But of course, certainly Tigray and Eritrea share a history noting that Abiy Ahmed has now formed a a relationship with Eritrea and uh, he's had good relationships with President Isayas. People might see this as Ethiopia having an ally in Eritrea. And so should there need Eritrea's involvement, I think that Ethiopia might fall back on Eritrea as its ally. But it is still difficult to say in this conflict in particular, whether or not Eritrea is involved, because, you know, even after the rocket attack, Eritrea has not retaliated in any way. And so it brings us back to the point of it's hard to verify things right now. And, you know, unless uh, there is an official statement from Eritrea saying that they are part of it, I think it's difficult to say with confidence uh, whether or not they are. Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed won a Nobel Peace Prize for ending the border dispute with Eritrea in 2018, burnishing his image as a reformer and peacemaker. But this conflict in Tigray threatens to tarnish that image, which already may have been somewhat illusory. Nani Detti agrees with what I've heard from other Africa experts, that there is a sense of closing civic space on parts of the continent, and political discontent is growing as a result. 
While that trend isn't as clear in Ethiopia as it is with, say, the anti-SARS protests in Nigeria, the problem of civic space still matters. The reason that Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed came to power is because of a response to the shrinking of uh, civic spaces. You know, there were so many protests that demanded change that, you know, eventually led to him coming to power. But even in 2020, you know, even though we've seen a lot of reforms in the past couple of years, I will say that, you know, one criticism that people uh, still have against the Prime Minister is that a few prominent political opponents are currently in jail. A few journalists have been arrested even in the past past few weeks uh, who've done reporting on the Tigray conflict. Uh, the government had also issued a few warnings to international media groups working in Ethiopia uh, about how they report uh, the, the current conflict. The federal government declared victory in the conflict last week after seizing the Tigrayan regional capital, Mikel. But some reports indicate TPLF fighters have fortified themselves in the region's mountainous enclaves, raising the possibility of a drawn-out guerrilla war. Nothing is truly predictable in this conflict, especially with communications still shut down, but the chances for expanded violence and political instability are surely large. Nani Detti is the Africa Program Researcher at the Center for International Policy. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. Indigenous people across the U.S. have been fighting to get their land back. As this movement is gaining momentum, many are starting to talk about what sovereignty really means beyond just reclaiming land and resources. Amara Evering reports. Though technically the sovereignty of Native American tribes is embedded in our Constitution, the right of tribes to govern themselves has been an over 200-year struggle. And though we often think of this struggle for sovereignty in terms of land ownership, it also encompasses the ability to reclaim power over what was lost, over what was colonized and violated. Sovereignty applies to the physical bodies of Native people too, especially Indigenous women, whose bodies have also been violated, abused, and seen as a means of conquest. I spoke with Anita Lucchese, Cheyenne descendant and founding executive director of the organization Sovereign Bodies Institute, which works to address and document violence against indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people. She spoke to me about the connection between the sovereignty of land and the sovereignty of bodies. Our name, Sovereign Bodies Institute, comes from the idea that our physical, personal bodies are sovereign, but also that sovereignty is connected to the sovereignty of our tribal nations, our homelands, all of those things are connected. So when you think of a body, it can be like a human body, but it can also be a national body or a body of water or a celestial body. All of those things are tied together. And so for us, in fighting for bodily sovereignty for Indigenous people, people, we're understanding that that fight includes fighting for the sovereignty of our nations and our homelands as well. And for the Sovereign Bodies Institute, this also means reclaiming data, data that tends to give a poor representation of our country's national crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Lucchese addresses how this inaccurate information affects Native communities. 
a lot of the data that's out there on violence against Indigenous people, especially Indigenous women, is created by the federal government and really doesn't truly help us or represent us. So for example, I think a lot of people are familiar with the statistic, one in three Native women will be raped in their lifetimes. Most of us have heard that. Most of us have no idea where it comes from. As I've traveled across any country and especially talked to women and and teen girls, statistics like that are really used to terrorize our women and girls. And I think I've seen it most profoundly with our teen girls. They're so fearful of becoming one of the one in three that their lives are really shaped by safety planning in a way that they shouldn't have to be. It becomes a way of policing Indigenous women's bodies and behaviors in ways that the settler state wants us to behave. So that's just not helpful. That doesn't reduce violence. That actually is violence in and of itself. So SBI is an attempt to say, well, what if we did things differently? What if we created research on issues like this that helped us to heal, empower, or mobilize our peoples rather than terrorized or traumatized? And what if we did research that made this violence something that would eventually end rather than something that makes it seem normal? And so in response to this, the Sovereign Bodies Institute created the largest and most comprehensive database of missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and Two-Spirit people. This database documents over 4,500 cases with detailed information about these women. And though you may think that law enforcement has similar types of data in their systems, Lucchese says that this just isn't the case. One of the reasons why our data is so different from the numbers that law enforcement have is because what we've seen is law enforcement have all sorts of ways of just making missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls disappear all over again. And many of these cases don't just slip through the cracks every now and then. Rather, there are systematic ways that violence against Indigenous women is downplayed or simply not recognized at all. And it happens in a couple of ways. That happens through racial misclassification, so not counting someone as Native when they are, but also misclassification of cases. I've seen law enforcement come up with bizarre gray area loopholes to say, oh, she just walked into the woods and laid down and died. Or it's true, she was experiencing domestic violence, and it's true, she told the nurse that her husband beat her before she went into the coma, but she was also an alcoholic, so she probably just fell over drunk and gave herself her own head injury. That's the kind of narrative that we get from law enforcement. And this lack of rigorous investigation is especially concerning when we consider that the third leading cause of death for Indigenous women and girls is homicide, according to the Center for Disease Control. And the families that do reach out to law enforcement for help on behalf of a lost or murdered loved one are often met with apathy. Every family I've ever worked with has said law enforcement didn't listen to us. Many say that law enforcement won't return their phone calls. That's certainly our experience as advocates, too. Most of the families we work with go years without an update from law enforcement on their loved one's case. And it seems to be an easy practice for law enforcement to say, well, we're not really sure what happened and we'll keep working on it. And then they just kind of ghost the family and then expect everyone to forget the case and never ask them about it again. But simply forgetting a missing or murdered loved one is an impossible task, especially if the perpetrator has yet to be brought to justice. And Lucchese found that the likelihood of someone being convicted at the end of the day often has to do with their race. 
So we released a report in November of last year. We were looking at MMIW in the Northern Plains, so Montana, the Dakotas, and Nebraska. And what we found is among the cases where there was an alleged perpetrator identified, Indigenous men were much more likely to be charged or convicted. And then kind of the next rung down was other men of color. Then the next rung down was white women. And then the next rung down after that was white men. And so what was really upsetting is that what we found is only one in two white men who are identified as alleged killers of a Native woman are ever even arrested. So according to the Sovereign Bodies Institute, across the four states studied in this report, one in four of the alleged murderers of an indigenous woman or girl were never held accountable, and over a third of the cases were misclassified as an accident, an overdose, or a suicide because of inadequate investigation. But these findings don't only apply to the four states that were studied in this report. That report was Northern Plains specific, but we also found similar data here in California and throughout the country. I think there's been a really amazing national dialogue on police violence and police racism this year, and there's still a lot left to be covered in that dialogue. But one piece of that is just how responsible are police officers and law enforcement for this violence going unaccounted for? not just not documented, but law enforcement are complicit, not just in terms of not pursuing investigations, but there's been repeated instances where law enforcement are actually the suspects in cases. We're working in at least three different communities that have the same repeated stories from multiple families and multiple community members about law enforcement officers raping Native women and intentionally going to the reservation to do that. And it's multiple officers, multiple generations of officers. Typically, the story is that they'll arrest a woman and sexually assault her on the way back to the county jail. And so it's also the people in booking at the county jail because they're not reporting anything. So there's not only a systematic law enforcement bias that prevents cases from being brought to justice, but there's also systematic police violence that's going completely unaccounted for. And this lack of accountability, whether that be at police stations, reservations, or urban neighborhoods, has maintained a culture of violence against Indigenous women and girls. And despite this, Lucchese, among others, is committed to remembering and honoring these women. I have an auntie who describes the spirits of our missing and murdered loved ones as warrior women. They gave their lives so that we could fight for other women to have the right to live free from violence. The Yurok tribe has a saying that goes, Tukiskui Sunewuchek. That means, I will see you again in a good way. For those murdered and missing women, girls, and two spirit people, their loved ones hold on to this that they may see them someday again in a good way. And hopefully, justice could be found on Earth first. If you'd like to get involved with the Sovereign Bodies Institute, please visit sovereign-bodies.org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Amara Evering. Even as presidential transition efforts have haltingly begun, 
and some Republican officials are reluctantly distancing themselves from schemes proposed by President Trump and his allies to suspend the Constitution and invalidate the election, which he lost badly. Concerns remains that if there is any trick that will permit him to remain in office after January 20th, Trump will certainly attempt it. Dr. Greg Carr, professor and chair of Africana Studies at Howard University, says, however, that the new GOP mantra, overt racist white nationalism, is alive and well with or without Trump in the White House. What we have seen over the last week or so, certainly the last couple of weeks, but the last uh, few days even in particular, is that there is a begrudging acceptance beginning to emerge from the overt white nationalist party, the GOP, that not only did Donald Trump use the election, but they uh, are, are beginning to recognize him as an increasing liability to their ongoing plan. Because, I mean, when we look, you know, as we reflect on it, the, the, the GOP is really the, the kind of open partner with the oligarchy with corporate interests. Not that Democrats aren't a partner, they certainly are, but the Republican Party has just become an open conduit for corporate interests, elite interests. And, you know, as long as Donald Trump continued in the vein to allow them to um, concretize and advance that agenda, and he did with the tax cuts and so many other things, you know, they could tolerate the open white nationalism because many of them are open white nationalists. But he clearly lost the election. Uh, clearly, the leader of the Republican Party at the federal level, who is Mitch McConnell, uh, was more than willing and remains willing to be silent and allow Trump his tantrum and allow his followers, who comprise millions of voters nationwide, to have their tantrum, particularly since so many of them came out that the United States Senate did not flip. Uh, McConnell was willing to allow them their tantrum, but what we've seen over the last week is that that willingness has begun to recede. I'm sure that uh, Bill Barr, Attorney General Barr, his uh, declaration in the last day that the Department of Justice has not found any credible evidence of, of fraud, widespread, massive voter fraud. That was something I would be willing to bet um, was done in the wake of conversations with Mitch McConnell. So that robs Trump of a very important ally, perhaps his most loyal ally in the cabinet. This man has been willing to be a toady bar since he applied for the job with his little memo. So that, that to me is a signal that the Republican Party has conceded. Um, it is not necessary for them to maintain, um, it's not necessary for them to maintain the, the charade that Trump won the election for their ongoing agenda. Certainly if they win one or both of the Senate seats in the runoffs in Georgia, they will just be brazen about it. Uh, we see some of the pushback 
uh, right now in terms of some of, of uh, Joe Biden's proposed cabinet picks from the Republicans. And Democrats have never proven that they're willing to stand and shoulder and fight the, the open white nationalists, and they won't do it this time, I don't think. But they don't need Donald Trump to maintain their obstructionism. And they know that. But their concern right now, I think, their concern since the election last month was how do we somehow retain this base of overt racist, um, overt kind of retrograde thinking folk, the anti-maskers, the, uh, the, the, the coalition that people, I think, erroneously attribute solely to Donald Trump. They should really attribute it to the Republican Party. But this election was not close enough to steal. So the courts have surrendered, including the Trump appointees. And I mean, especially the Trump appointees. They've surrendered. The politicians have all but surrendered. They're not acknowledging Biden as president, many of them, on the Republican side, just out of spite. Because they're past the election. And so I think the thing we have to, you know, I mean, if we're going to pay attention to anything, it would be the Georgia Senate race. And the other thing we should pay attention to after that Georgia Senate race, no matter how it comes out, would be 2022. Because those who are running, who are considering running for president, whether it be a Marco Rubio or a Tom Cotton or some of these other white uh, nationalists, supporters of white nationalism, they want Trump voters. And if Donald Trump decides to, and I think he will, if he isn't in jail, um, continue to fuel rumors that he's going to run in 2024, that freezes some of those white nationalist voters and it cripples the aspirations of some of these folks who uh, want to be president of the United States. But that's a, that's a war within the white nationalist faction at the federal level. But I, but I think this election is is, is over. I don't think that, that that's really anything we need to be concerned about. If there's chaos as a result of a default on the federal debt on the 11th, on December 14th, the Electoral College votes, and uh, there may be some mischief sown in those events, uh, even before the, uh, the election on January the 5th, the Republican Party has shown that it picks itself over any notion of uh, any concept of America. I often say, you know, the United States of America isn't a nation. It's a multinational federal state, a lot of different nations in it, a lot of different people in it. And, he, and the Republican Party has, cho- has shown that this iteration of the Republican Party chooses white nationalism over everything. So I would be surprised if, if that legislation reaches the president of the United States' death, if he doesn't veto it. I would be surprised that he's not being encouraged in that. Because uh, the Republican Party wants to sabotage uh, any Biden presidency. It doesn't matter how, quote-unquote, moderate, how neoliberal. It doesn't matter uh, how any of those things the Biden, a Biden administration would be. That's not the point. The Republican Party has shown that it chooses itself over everything. So I wouldn't be surprised for Trump. I wouldn't be surprised if the United States goes into debt because they use the debt ceiling. The Republican Party is only concerned with debt when the Democratic Party is in power. And when they're in power, they run up huge deficits. And, of course, with this tax cut bomb 
that they launched in the first couple of years of the Trump presidency, they they threatened with the United States with even deeper debt. So they will they will they'll be very happy to have the United States default on its debt. Whether they're smart enough to know that if they uh, uh, steal this or, or try to introduce, well, they're going to try to introduce chaos. But if they I think I don't know if they're smart enough. I think they're smart enough and astute enough to realize that if this election is indeed awarded to Donald Trump through some series of subterfuge and then people conceding to that subterfuge and then doing something as, as overt as that, that it would be the end of the federal polity. Uh, and by that, I mean uh, the states like California, New York, you know, these states are just not going to tolerate that. And the states where the election was much closer will erupt. Um, now there will be some who, you know, certainly among the white nationalists, who would say that's been the end game all along. This is the Steve Bannons of the world. But I think uh, it's one thing to talk about it in theory; it's another thing to embrace it in fact. And I don't think that we're on the verge of that. I don't think we're on the verge of that. But I do agree with you wholeheartedly. Everything that you said as a potential uh, development. Um, may or may not be probable, but it's certainly not outlandish to to map out that type of kind of sequential scenario with contests and chaos being introduced all the way through. Now, in terms of, like as I said, in terms of defaulting on the, the debt and the debt ceiling not being raised, that's an old Republican trick. Now, the question will be whether Biden um, has enough of a spine and the Biden administration has enough of a spine to um, to confront that once they're in office. Um, and that is an open question, disturbingly so, which again makes the next few weeks and that special election in Georgia that much more important because if those two seats go Democratic, that puts the Democrats in the game. It doesn't mean the Democrats will be able to forestall something like that, certainly, but it puts them in the game because we don't know about a, a Joe Manchin in West Virginia or Kelly out of Arizona, whether or not they would defect and join the Republicans in, in, in some of their shenanigans. But certainly the election, especially election in Georgia, uh, is, is probably the most important thing that folks who are organizers, folks who are trying to get folks to come out and vote, particularly in Georgia, need to be focusing on. Because I do think you're right. The, the debt ceiling. I don't see the Republicans willing to raise the debt ceiling at all. No, it, it would be against their strategy. Dr. Greg Carr is professor and chair of Africana Studies at Howard University. And that's our show for today. Monday Morning QB is produced by Chris Banger Drowns, Amara Evering, and Sue Goodwin. I'm Askia Muhammad. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash WPFWMMQB. Please stay safe, keep your social distance, mask up. And thank you for listening to WPFW Washington and WBAI New York. (laughs) 